0: All right, over the past few weeks, we've been considering the second half of Ephesians 6, verse 4. Uh, Christian parents' God-given responsibility to raise our children in the uh, the Greek words paideia and Nuthesia of the Lord. The paideia of the Lord is a process of Christian formation via an (laughs) all-encompassing Christian enculturation. So it involves home life, church life, education, it involves the arts, it involves larger civilization and culture, and beyond. Uh, the new thessia of the Lord points to the facts, the fact that parents are to be their children's teachers and counselors and instructors uh, in this process of formation in the Lord. That doesn't mean that our children don't have other teachers and counselors pastors, instructors, and so on. But it does mean that we're called to be on the front lines of teaching them about God and about themselves, about God's world, all of which flows out of God's Word. Now, because education is such a key ingredient to paideia, and because uh, our children's education is such a big part of their lives, we've spent a few weeks talking about education and our children. But there are other angles to consider. So today we will consider this uh, larger aspect of, or another aspect of a larger Christian civilization and culture. And then some of its offshoots. Again, remember that Paideia was a Greco-Roman idea that serves as our backdrop to understand the Paideia of the Lord. So the Paideia of Rome, which was that Roman process of enculturation where they sought to raise up these ideal Roman citizens of the next generation, it was dependent on a distinctly Roman civilization and culture. Um, So you could say that to truly live out this command of raising the next generation in a Christian paideia, we need, likewise, a distinctly Christian civilization and culture. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean like a Christian country or a Christian state or even Christian cities, but at least a distinctly Christian culture in the home, in the community, uh, a culture that is set against the cultures of this world, alternate cities in and around the cities uh, that we live in. I think about uh, Acts chapter 2, you can turn there if you like. We're going to take a look at that and it's really the first look that we get uh, at the life together of the early Christian church. So I will start reading in Acts chapter 2 verse 42, and then we will uh, make a few comments from there. Follows I read Acts 2:42 to 47. This is the Word of God. You see that uh, three thousand in verse forty-one, three thousand people were saved. It says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. This is the very beginning of the church. The Spirit has just come at Pentecost, uh, and you know this outpouring of the Spirit. There is now a megachurch, three thousand people, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of the bread, and the prayers. those who were being saved. Amen. I'll mention a few things here. First, notice that the believers were devoted to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. And the apostles' teaching is referring to the Scriptures. Uh, They were devoted to God's Word. We now have the apostles' teaching in the form of the New Testament. And the apostles were teaching from the Old Testament Scriptures. So, you know, it's safe to say that uh, this is just referring to God's word. And the fellowship isn't just referring to uh, maybe having a meal with Christian friends though that is included and we see that as a part uh, of what is there further down in the text. But this word koinonia is really an umbrella term for the whole thing. It would include their more formal fellowship like corporate worship and the more informal like sharing meals in one another's homes and that sort of thing. So, in verse 46, we see that they were doing both of these things all the time. Day by day, it says, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. Not week by week, but day by day, worshiping together in the temple and sharing meals together in their homes. Now, uh, things were set up different then. They didn't have cars, they probably lived pretty close to the temple. Uh, walking distance, perhaps you know, walking distance to one another's homes. Although I guess you could argue, the length of time it took them to walk, we could probably drive in the same amount of time, and be less dirty when we get there. Um, I sometimes wonder if we wouldn't benefit from a more modernized version of this. When I when I think about uh, some of the things I may be interested in, um, if I were a pastor of a church or something like that, maybe neighborhood congregations. Uh, sort of like the parish model of the Catholic Church. It's kind of the way they function, or at least maybe a parish model for small groups, kind of targeting specific neighborhoods areas. Uh, there are churches in our city doing that more in the inner city, I think. I don't know why you couldn't do it in suburban areas, but you know, Christ Community, Rick Donlin, I mean, they kind of target Binghamton, Orange Mountain. They have different, it's kind of a parish model. Uh, not only to cultivate a deeper fellowship with one another and sharing meals together more often. Uh, but we also see here that the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who are being saved. So this wasn't just an inward focus fellowship. It is pretty striking how inward the focus was when you consider um, what it I mean meeting together in the temple daily and meeting together in their homes daily. Was, they were very committed to the Lord and to one another. And yet You know, it's not in the text, but we can ask the question, how is it that they were reaching others? Um, We have to assume here, and we see this throughout the rest of the book of Acts, that, you know, evangelism, hospitality um, had to be a big part of their life together, of inviting the stranger in, inviting their neighbors in. It was not a uh, Christian community that sought community as an end in and of itself, but it was a community on Christ's mission to reach the world around them. So again, um, inviting their neighbors in to see the beauty and power of the Lord's redeemed, Holy Spirit-filled people living life together and also sharing Christ with them. I mean, again, how else are they going to hear if they don't tell them? And faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of Christ, so we can assume that these people were um, committed to the Lord and one another and also committed to reaching the world around them. So... uh, you know, it doesn't necessarily matter what I think about when if I were to do something off in the future, but how can we apply that now? Uh, I think for each one of us, is something we talk about a lot in here, but I think it's very important, that as individuals and as families, um, you know, not waiting for others to invite us in, but inviting others into fellowship, whether that's in your home, whether that's... Uh, a meal out after church, whatever it is. You know, I'm a big fan of uh, making goals for this, writing them on the calendar, only because I know that if I don't, it doesn't happen. We're busy. Um, You know, we kind of roll through another month and say, oh yeah, weren't we going to do that? And so, you know, just what are our goals? Um, I would say if you're not in the habit of regularly having people over, set a goal for once a month and make a list of people that you like to have over, and you may not hit every month, and that's okay. Uh, Try to work up to once a week. Try to have a day during the week where you're hosting and and inviting people in. You may not become best friends, but I think this is significant, and we see that this is a part of what the first church was doing. They were breaking bread in their homes together day by day. So also, for those of you who do have uh, another person or another couple or another group, that you get together with regularly, uh, I would challenge you to be inviting others into that group. If there is, um, if there is that fellowship that is life giving to you and that you really enjoy and a great encouragement to be with God's people, and you guys, you know, like each other most of the time and you get together pretty regularly, uh, look around the class. Who are some people that you expect? probably don't have that same kind of opportunity in those same kind of relationships and invite them in. And to those that don't have relationships like that, I would say don't wait on the invitation, but, you know, start inviting other people in whether you know if they have that kind of relationship or not. Of course, then it's not only inviting people from church, but neighbors, people you work with. And this may seem like work initially, but once it becomes a part of the rhythm, I think it happens a lot more uh, naturally. You know, family from Johnny's soccer team, whoever it is, but it's just a part of what we're doing. Um, And then for the purposes that we've been talking about, I think raising our children as a part of this. You know, this was a distinct characteristic of the early Christian church. uh, So don't always get a sitter for stuff like this. I think for our our children to be able to see there's nothing wrong with getting a sitter right but for our children to be able to experience Christian fellowship uh, like that it's a significant thing and whether that's with people in the church or people outside the church, I think it is a our children need to be immersed in that and and by being immersed in that they they learn it. I remember uh, Craig Daniel you know. Told me his parents had a group of people they got together with all the time when they were growing up. And, you know, that just became a real passion of his as a young man, as a husband, as a father, and that sort of thing. So, all right, let me go back to um, the fact that the first church was attending the temple together daily. Uh, so, not only did they have the weekly worship service like we would maybe think of, but they had uh, times of prayer daily at the church as well. You can see that in the next chapter, Acts chapter 3, verse 1 says, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. So that's 3 p.m. It says in my little notes in my Bible. Um, Maybe they only had one hour of prayer in the day. Some say, you know, you read uh, historians and that sort of thing. They're saying they might have had three hours of prayer uh, during the day, which for us sounds more like you know, the Orthodox Jews or the Muslims or uh, uh, the Catholic Church has kind of a daily liturgy as well. Don't they have a mass every day you can go to or something like that? Um, and I think this is something that we should think about. We see it here in the early church. Uh, we also see it if you scan history, you know, you travel forward from here before you lose your breath too, just bear with me. I think it'll come full circle to uh, helpful applications of where we are. But you travel forward from here in the early church a few hundred years to the monks and the monasteries, and these were hard-working communities of believers that were committed to daily, corporate, and individual uh, spiritual disciplines. You know, scripture reading, prayer, psalm and hymn singing, and and hard work was one of the things that really marked those communities. Uh, A few hundred years after that, you get to the Reformation And we can still see this type of daily liturgy. It is said uh, that John Calvin preached every morning. He would be on 10 and then off for a few and then on 10 or something like that. So one of the reasons he has so many sermons that you can still find is because he's preaching every day. Um, Even today, Tiffany and I were recently watching a video from the uh, series called Dispatches from the Front. We would Both highly recommended. It's about missionary teams working for gospel advance in hard-to-reach places. Uh, Dispatches from the front. There's a book. There's also a DVD series. But uh, I believe this one was about a village in Uganda uh, with Dennis. Is that Uganda? Liberia, maybe. Okay. Liberia or Uganda. I can't remember. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Who can know? They they were both mentioned in the same video, so. Uh, but the point is, there's this scene where they're going at sunrise to meet together in the you know the church. Um, it's a lot less lavish than ours, but uh, they meet together every morning for scripture reading and prayer for a few minutes before they go to work. Uh, again, I think in a parish model, kind of a community neighborhood model, maybe that's more possible. Um, and even if not. Again, back to paideia, Christian formation, thinking of our children. Even if not at the larger community level, recognizing that this uh, Christian culture is very important and seeing, being informed by Christian cultures from the Bible and from history, uh, even if it's not at the larger community level, this is part of our, our lives uh, in our homes that our children need to be immersed in. The daily spiritual disciplines, um, you know, teaching them how to do that individually as they grow up, but also corporately as a family, word and prayer and beyond. Uh, So over the last many weeks, I've made a consistent mention of Deuteronomy 7, which is uh, Deuteronomy 6, verse 7, which is really the parallel passage to Ephesians 6, 4, you know, Ephesians in the New, Deuteronomy in the Old. It's about the responsibility of believing parents to raise up the next generation in the formation of the Lord. But it goes into more detail about how to do that. It says that uh, to teach God's Word diligently to your children, talking about it when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. And so we can say that this means that we are to be talking about God's Word all the time. You know, It just needs to be something a part of our normal conversation. And that is true... But it also gives us uh, set times in order to get to all the time, and uh, you know some are more organic when you sit around, when you when you walk around, uh, some more firmly established when you wake up and and uh, when you lie down. So I think when as we move away from talking about the uh, specifically about the instruction and formation of our children in the Lord. This is a, vor- a verse that we all need to face and conform to. I mean, all of us who, have, uh, who are Christians, who have children, we really do want them to know the Lord, right? And we know that we're utterly uh, dependent on God's grace for that to happen. We know and rest in, we talked about this a lot a few weeks back, but that God has made some astounding promises in regard to salvation in Christ, not only for us but also for our children. And uh, yet we must also embrace the fact that God has given some serious responsibilities in order to bring them to Christ and to grow them up, uh, to, to extend His grace to them. So, uh, might our homes be marked in obedience to Deuteronomy 6-7, understanding that God's commands are not burdensome, they are life-giving. They lead us on the path of life and flourishing uh, for us and for our children. I think that it's hard, especially in many of our lives, as busy as they are, it's hard to establish new habits, Um, but all things are possible with God. And if God has given you children, very few things are more important for us than those daily responsibilities of raising them to know Him. So, what is that? What can that look like? I'm certainly not the uh, um, benchmark here. I think floundering and uh, stumbling, just like many of you. But, you know, God strikes straight blows with crooked sticks, and uh, it's better to do something, even if not well, I think, than to do nothing. this is something that, and just to give you an idea of age, as your kids are older, it looks different. There's more maturity, more uh, attention span. And, uh, but, you know, for us, Levi's four. He gets up before anybody, before the other kids. And uh, that's at a time when I've been reading the Word and, you know, praying. And uh, he comes down and he just sits next to me and puts his thumb in his mouth. And we've kind of established this pattern of, Daddy, come sit to Daddy, and I'm going to tell you what I've been reading. What it's done for me, which is a great Bible study discipline, even if you don't have anyone to tell it to, is try to draw main themes or main points from the chapter or chapters that you just read, and then try to explain it to a kid you know uh, which leaves me wrestling through it to try to really you know at seven fifteen I know seven is coming, and I'm like, i got to come up with something, you know so paying attention, really coming up with a a point or two uh, that was being talked about, and I'm telling you, this is two minutes, you know, of comment and prayer. Um, that's not that in depth, but I think it's an effort to try and do what um, we're being called to here. And then, you know, we've talked about in the evenings and that sort of thing. Um, I'm a big fan of. Someone I asked Marty Machowski. You guys remember he came and spoke here. He has that gospel story Bible. And he was talking a lot about family devotion. And I was like, dude, I'll be honest. I mean, that scares me and kind of creeps me out. And so I don't really know what does that look like. And uh, he said, look, how old are your kids? I said, they're pretty young. He said, regardless, read a story, say a prayer, sing a song. I was like, sing a song? and uh, so just do it they're young who cares you know and uh, so all in all that's like five to seven minutes but I think one of the things too that it does is it not only are we disseminating information but they're they're being immersed in a culture of worship you know of dependence and prayer and and uh, singing so again I'm not the standard but if you hear that and you're like what in the world will we do those are some ideas Um, I've also been thinking about this in terms of the established times of prayer in the early church. Uh, What if we did that? Why wouldn't we do that? Uh, Is that what the Lord has called us to? You know, I think certainly we see it more explicitly in terms of our instructing our children in Deuteronomy 6. But we can also learn from the example of the early church. uh, John and Peter going at the hour of prayer and that sort of thing. This is not something that I've personally implemented. uh, But it is something that keeps coming up. And so I think it's I need to pay attention to it and figure out a way to implement something. Again, even if it's just starting with a few minutes once a day or a couple times a day, uh, specifically for prayer, both personally and, again, corporately within the home, if, uh, if there is a corporation there. But, uh, you know we all want our prayer lives to be organic and fluid and and sincere and not rigid and rote. Um, And yet, I think the way we get there is the vine needs a structure, a trellis to grow on, right? So as we have these disciplines, um, we find ourselves more fluid in communication with God. And that goes both ways in His Word and prayer and, and that sort of thing. So... Uh, there's an idea there. But not only that, maybe uh, also that our children would be immersed in that, that there would be a time of prayer um, where we are, they are learning in these daily and weekly rhythms to sit at the feet of Christ, which is ultimately what we want them to know. All right, back to the passage in Acts 2. Uh, I also want to make mention of the radical generosity of the first church. It says that all were together and had all things in common. Uh, but this wasn't like living on a commune and there's no private property. They still had private property. And we know that because in verse 45 it says, <clears throat> they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So they still had personal possessions and they still had personal belongings. They were just radical in their generosity. Uh they truly lived like what's mine is not really mine; it's God's, and you know what's mine is yours.
1: Can, can you read those? They're collectively choosing to sell their common possessions, also.
0: Sure. Yeah, I mean, um, you could apply that to what the church group had acquired. Uh, I don't know what they had acquired at that point. Is that what I guess you mean? I'm saying, you
1: know, they held everything in common and as a group decided to sell things all those things in common Pot, and that could be one yeah. of rather than saying they maybe they didn't have that much in terms of personal possessions.
0: Right. Um, yeah, they were selling their possessions. So you're saying that could mean they being the Definitely. church. Maybe so. You could take it either way. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> good point. I think the, you know, it, the principle stays and so Might that challenge the way that we view and uh, steward our personal possessions? And again, for our purposes over the last few weeks, might that inform the way that we raise our children, that they would be immersed in a culture of radical generosity? Um, I was talking to a family this week that... God led very clearly to um, empty their checking account for a very serious need that arose and uh, they included their children in the process. They brought the children in for one so that they could tell them this is why you're not going to have anything for a while uh, anything extra but ultimately I think the heart behind it was training them and showing them this is what the Christ life is all about. Yeah these are our things but they're really God's things and and so there's a need that has arisen in, uh, a, you know, in the church community, and uh, so we're going to give. Um, after all, what do we have that we have not received as a gift from God? And what is the purpose of what God has given? And ultimately, isn't that what Christ has done with us? I mean, He's given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, it says in Ephesians 1, at great cost to Himself. So I love the the themes that are spoken around here a lot of times. Uh, live more simply, to give more sacrificially, to accomplish the Great Commission. Uh, give until it hurts is something that I've heard a lot. And I think um, that I'm very encouraged by many of much of what I see in, in this group uh, in that regard. And yet I would say I think we're only getting started. And I think we've only scratched the surface. And uh, I really believe that... Um, you know, God intends for us to grow up uh, into what we see here in Acts 2. All right, when we think about all this, um, there are some believers today that think that we should return to some of these older models of Christian community uh, to better be able to be and do what God has called us to be and do, uh, to better be able to reach the world around us for Christ. Christ. One such example I was reading about this week is from a man named Rod Dreher, uh, D-R-E-H-E-R. He has written a number of books. He, he blogs at, at the blog titled The American Conservative. He has great stuff, uh, you know, religious, political commentary, anyway, for anyone interested. But um, he's writing a lot right now about what he's calling the Benedict Option and is working on a book by that name uh, in reference to Benedict of Nursia. Uh, who lived in the late 4 and early 500s. He was not the first monk, but he started lots of monasteries, and he really popularized the monastic life, and because of that, he's really considered the father of monasticism. Uh, Now, it may sound crazy that Rod Dreher thinks that the church should learn from Benedict uh, and figure out what a modern monasticism would look like, and I think part of the reason that sounds crazy to us is because We only have this caricature of what monks really were in our mind. Um, Many of the monks were great missionaries. Uh, One such example is St. Francis of Assisi. He is credited with that very unfortunate quote, preach the gospel if necessary use words. Uh, You can't preach the gospel without words. But the irony is that St. Francis and his followers, uh, though they lived life in a monastic community, They were very committed to ministry in the streets, uh, great evangelists, and God used them mightily for the advancement of the kingdom. Now, I'm not sure what I think about what Rod Dreher is pushing. Again, I was just reading it this week. Uh, I'm interested to read his book when it comes out uh, to see what, what he thinks, how that might apply in our day. But again, I can respect the fact that he is seeking before God to apply what he sees in God's Word Um, how to cultivate a distinct, robust Christian civilization and culture that stands out against the civilizations and cultures of this world, uh, immersing the next generation in a distinctly Christian culture to train them up, uh, not only to know God and love Him and love His people, but also to reach the world around them. Um, So I'm interested to know what you guys think about this. I've got a little thought experiment. Uh, Let's say that you're trying to reach a uh, town of, I don't know, 20,000 or whatever it is. Let's say it's dark and it's dangerous and seriously immoral. Uh, We know convictionally, you know, God has called us to go to every people group, every tribe, every tongue, uh, every neighborhood uh, for Christ. So is the best way to reach them moving in among them, next door neighbors, and, uh, mixing it up in the streets, or uh, would it be establishing a distinct community within the community or maybe on the outskirts of the community uh, a community that has walls so to speak from the surrounding culture so here's the um, putting more legs on it, here's the thought experiment let's use an example of an area that we're mostly familiar with um, let's say we wanted to have a plan of attack to reach Fraser for Christ Okay. Do you think the best way to do that would be to move in, live in the streets, uh, you know, mix it up as neighbors and that sort of thing, or purchasing uh, 50 acres on the outskirts of Fraser, building a Christian community and culture there, uh, eagerly seeking day by day not only to you know, worship together and devote, be devoted to one another... Uh, but also to reach Fraser for Christ, whether that's evangelism, discipleship, uh, starting businesses there, you know, serving the community, hospitality, all that sort of thing. What do you guys think?
1: Look at me. Oh yeah, you—you yeah, you look like
0: you're—you got some things to say. Well, I
1: think biblically, biblically you look at it and you say you try to not necessarily commit immediately to moving there, but you try to find people of peace there and begin working with them. And then if the opportunity presents itself to have a community of people to move to that area and work with those people of peace to then begin spreading the gospel. I think having a lone ranger mentality can do more harm than good in some situations. Mm-hmm. So
0: well let's just say and I don't I'm just this just I'm just thinking about this. But Uh, It doesn't have to be Fraser. Use your imagination. It could be uh, a neighborhood in, you know, Germantown. But um, So let's say 10 people here or 15 people or whatever wanted to start that. Should they move in among the streets or should they try to cultivate something here with an intentional eye and heart and mission toward the community? In among the streets. You think so? Do you want to say anything else about that?
1: Um, I would just, I mean, I just think being in the community, I mean, you're, you're living where um, the people you want to reach would be.
0: Mm-hmm. A lot of people live by that model. I mean, that's kind of Christ community and, and uh, that that model there.
1: I have some friends that live in like the 126 area, kind of, like in the foothills Homes area, mm-hmm. and I um, several couples over time, which maybe be <coughs> or seven, and then some single people that kind of all live in that area together. And they have their neighbors over for cookouts and for birthday parties. And um, my friends and their friends that kind of moved in together, get together three times a week in the mornings before the kids get up, pray together, all of them together. I think there's something really neat about mm-hmm. that model and they're really building relationships. For Next to neighbors. From the inside, yeah. Down. And then also work in ministries in that neighborhood people.
0: It. Yeah. Oh. it's interesting to me to think about I don't have any answer I mean I I was thinking it's two very different models with a very similar mission you know um, their goal and hope is to reach an area for Christ and so um,
1: I don't think either one's wrong I think you know, I think it's okay to make a mistake with a good heart too right? yeah I mean I gotta only get a mistake but yeah you know what I'm saying I think that we get to not, not from what your question is. I think we get so caught up in what's the best way to do it, yeah. but we're not, so we don't do it. Yeah, I think you're so right. So it's who cares?
0: Just go after it. I don't
1: have like, specific instructions from right. that I know of. Right. right.
0: But, uh, I think only, you're right.
1: The, the only word of caution I'll say is, whatever you do, do it with uh, pre- preparation and yeah. prayer. Right. It's yes. Like, I'm going to bust up in something. Right. Right. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> I, mean, I think that's what yeah. we do sometimes. Yeah,
0: I do too, and you know. Uh, so on those videos, uh, dispatches from the front, there's one. Uh, this family was moving to Bangladesh and you can't go there as missionaries. It's against the law. Uh, 99% Muslim, totally unreached, you know, very few Christians. But he went, I think I've told you guys about this, but he went he studied for three years, uh, you know, some theology and stuff, but also mainly about coffee because he was going to go there, start a coffee shop, grow coffee, in the hinterland regions, um, and that's what they've done. And they're planting churches in this unreached mountain area through the guys that are now working for them and earning a much better wage than they ever would have before. It's pretty awesome. But to your point, much prayer, years of preparation, uh, an established vision, and then, you know, turning it all over to God and your will be done. Kingdom come. So, I think to Blake's point, it's good... uh, D.L. Moody once said it was about evangelism. He was an evangelist, preacher in Chicago and, uh, and all over the world. But he was preaching on a box on the streets, and uh, someone came up to him, and, I don't, you know, I don't like the way you do that. I think it just gives a bad name to Christ and da-da-da. And he apparently gets down all ears and says, I understand. Uh, you know, well, what? tell me about what you do, and maybe we can adjust here. And the guy didn't, you know, he didn't do anything. And he said, "Well, I'll take uh, my method, you know, over yours." Uh, but I think that's a to your to illustrate your point. I think a lot of times um, we have neighbors, and uh, regardless of kind of the plan of attack, it's an eager seeking to engage those around us uh, to the point of our text, eagerly seeking. To engage with the Lord and with one another, uh, perhaps much more so than we're accustomed to, even culturally as a church, but then also uh, a community on the mission, you know, eagerly seeking those around us for Christ. Anybody else have any thoughts or questions about some of the things we've talked about? Hey,
1: Chris, I was just going to say I know you're talking about doing a daily devotional. With something like I completely flop app on you, know, you get
0: excited about it for like a week. And then oh, yeah. You know, week this, two, killer. Just
1: doesn't work. <laughs> so, I guess one thing I think um, some of the guys we've talked about this on Tuesdays, our Tuesday night thing that's been very helpful has been a uh, uh, an email that comes from, uh, I think it's uh, Piper, mm-hmm. He's in Desiring God series. And he does like a short, maybe like five paragraph. Right up on a verse. Yeah. And so if you sit at a desk, you know, get in your office and it's there by 6 or 6.30, so you can kind of, if you can't get to it the first thing, maybe you can read it during lunch. I just think it's a lot better way for me to, like, sure. maybe I have an opportunity to read it. Is that
0: I called think. Solid Joys? Is that what that is? Just,
1: it's Desiring God or Solid Joys. I can't remember Okay. But so, you can just sign, you just enter in your email. Get a daily email. thing? Yeah. So if you set it at dusk, I know a lot of you or don't. But if well, you I get a desk, lot. It might be a, good
0: idea. a lot of people will forward me the, hey, man, read this. This yeah. was good. And everyone I ever read is good. So, you it's know. It's
1: funny how some of them, too, like certain worms, they just absolutely punch you in the face. Yeah. It's, it's amazing well, good. Sometimes they match up a few
0: That's good. That's a good idea. Um. So we've spent many weeks talking about raising our children in the Lord. Uh, A couple big sweeping things I would want you to take away. Number one, God is more committed to our children than we are. We spent a number of weeks really fleshing that out. We talked about that theme over and over again in regard to baptism and communion and that sort of thing. He has made some astounding, breathtaking, wonderful, hope-filled promises in regard to salvation in Christ, not only for us, but also for our children He has called us to some commitments, but we must always remember that God's binding commitment to us and to our children undergirds whatever commitments we will make to Him. Jesus died to save us from our sins and to bring us to God in everlasting peace-filled fellowship with Him as sons and daughters of God, and He makes those promises to us and our children. So, uh, my daughter Sarah will be baptized in uh, within the hour, in a matter of minutes, and uh, that will serve to refresh my family in this reality. Uh, we are all being called to covenant commitment before God, Sarah included, even though she doesn't know what in the world's going on, but God's commitment to us, to her, uh, undergirds, informs, and fuels any commitment any commitments that we will make to Him in response. And the second thing, God has given Christian parents some serious responsibilities in raising our children in the Lord. Um, We know that our children are utterly dependent on God's grace in order to know Him and know His love for them, in order to love Him and serve Him. And I think one of the great needs that we have is to realize that our faithful, wielding, stumbling though we may, of the responsibilities that He's given us is a major means of grace in uh, bringing God's grace into their lives. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, we thank You for this day. Lord, we thank You for Your grace. It is uh, world-transforming. Lord, You have brought us from death to life. And uh, we were hardened to You, rebellious, uh, running away from You, even at the, as, as babies and uh, toddlers and young people. Even when we didn't know what we were doing, we were being hard-hearted and obstinate toward You. But God, You have uh, rescued us from our sin and its devastating effects by Your grace. Thank You, Lord Jesus for your life, for ours. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins. Thank you for sending the Holy Spirit to empower us to understand your love and grace and mercy toward us and also to empower us to live a new life in in the Spirit, not in the flesh. Lord, uh, as we consider the rearing of our children, I pray that we would know both of those things, uh, that any commitments that we will make are undergirded, Uh, by Your binding commitment to us and to our children. I pray that we would rest in that. I pray we would rejoice in that. I pray we would return to it again and again and again. We will inevitably fail every day to be uh, as You have called us to be. Might we rest and rejoice in Christ in in this great salvation that You've given us. And Lord, might that fuel us to very soberly and seriously consider the responsibilities that You've given us to raise our children in the paideia and neuthesia of the Lord, uh, that we would uh, steward that call well, and uh, Lord, by Your grace, that we would be uh, good means of grace for our children to know You. Uh, That is the end which we desire, is that they would know You, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom You have sent. And again, we ask for Your grace that that might happen.